This morning's scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. This is God's word. We're getting ready to close out on our series, What It Means to Be a Christian. And you find that throughout the history of the church, Christianity did not advance by the means of subversion, but through conversion. And therefore, a Christian, as a result, has to build himself around a pattern, around a culture of transformation. Now, this is a famous passage, this account. It's the last event of Jesus' physical ministry on earth. You have to learn something about Matthew. Matthew doesn't just give us an account of an event. He doesn't just give us the narrative, but he also gives us the sayings of Jesus. Throughout Matthew, you're going to see a narrative on one hand, but then you're going to see Jesus' own interpretation of that narrative. On one hand, he's doing this because he wants to show us that this is news. This happened. There are details, there are facts, that's the narrative. But on the other hand, we need to know why it happened. Why did these things happen? What, does, what do these things mean? In other words, it's not enough just to believe in the fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those facts need to shape your life. They need to change you. They need to transform you. What happened here? It's the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the basis for the faith of a Christian. It gives us hope. That's, that's the, the faith and the hope. That was the first sermon in the series. It's a hope of a new you. It's meaning and suffering. There's, there's restoration. There's victory. This is the power to live out the Christian life. But why do we do that? Where does Jesus Christ explain, interpret his resurrection? We see it here. The Great Commission. The Great Commission in this passage is Jesus' interpretation of the resurrection. It explains to us why he died. It's the key to transformation. It's the key to renewal of any individual of this city, of the entire world. And so we're going to look at four things, four things that we see that the resurrection assures us in the Great Commission. One, it gives us courage. Two, it gives us intimacy, lasting intimacy. Three, it gives us community, real community, fellowship. And lastly, it gives us victory. Community, intimacy, so courage, intimacy, community, and victory. And because Jesus Christ was raised, and we're raised with him, we can be born into this. So first we're going to see courage, poise, calm. In verse 18, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus Christ, he fully obeyed the Father, all the way to the cross. In the book of Philippians, the author says, it's because of his obedience, God exalted him to the highest place. In Romans, the apostle Paul, the author, he says that, uh, that Jesus is now at the right hand of the throne of God. The right hand of God is, is a position of the prime minister. It's the pl- position of the person who executes royal authority, royal power. It's the seat of rule, and it's the seat of favor. 
It's the place where divine power on one hand is executed, but it's also the place of favor where divine power intercedes. And so Jesus says, all authority on heaven and on earth and under the earth has been given to me, and I'm seated at the right hand of the throne. The Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed, if you know the Apostles' Creed, it mimics the book of Luke. The Son of Man is seated at the right hand. In other words, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. He's ruling. He is king. He rules. And yet, he's also seated. And what that means is, on one hand, he's the king. He's at the right hand. But on the other hand, he's the high priest. He is seated. The high priest in the Old Testament, after he's completed all of his duties, once a year he goes in, he enters into the Holy of Holies, he completes and fulfills the work that he's been called to fulfill once a year. The sacrifice of atonement is made, but his work is never truly finished, and so he never sits down. He's never seated. But here, Jesus Christ, on the cross, proclaims it is finished. The work is complete, the completed work, and so he's seated at the right hand of God. He's the king, but he's also the high priest. And as the high priest, seated, the perfect high priest, he intercedes for us in this place of favor. Jesus is saying, my administration, my administration is marked by redemption, is marked by justice, is marked by the glory of God accomplished through suffering, not despite suffering, but through suffering, through humiliation, through my death. And so if you're suffering, if, you're, if you feel betrayed in your life, if you've ever been betrayed in your life, if you've ever experienced injustice in your life, Jesus Christ suffered it too. He suffered it too on the cross, and his glory came through it. You know what that means? You can go to him. You can go to Jesus because he understands. As dark as it may have seemed on the cross, Jesus allowed it. As dark as our lives could be in our lives, Jesus allows it. It's a hard thing to, to submit to. But Jesus Christ submitted to the darkness in his lives so that evil would ultimately become swallowed up through it. Surely there were people on the cross. There were definitely people at the cross saying, I don't see any good that can come from this. This is a horrible tragedy. I can see no good that can come from this. Some of us, were looking at our lives. And you're saying right now, you're quaking. And you're saying, I don't see how could there be any good that can come from my situation. But if you think about it, just because you don't see any good that can come from your situation doesn't mean that there's no good. Doesn't mean that there can be no possibility of good. If you believe in a God that's powerful enough for you to be bitter at him because he will not stop the suffering, you have to at least consider the possibility of a God that's wise enough to hold back to relent. A God that's wise enough to let the suffering continue. In the book of Acts, you see Stephen, and Stephen, he's stoned to death. And during his trial and during his execution, what do you see? Do you see him quaking? He's calm. Stephen is poised. Acts chapter 7, he demonstrates tre tremendous poise. He says, like a face of an angel, so he looked to heaven, and he saw the glory of God. He sees heaven open, and the Son of Man seated. You see that again. The Son of Man is seated. That's what he sees. Seeing that the Son of Man is seated, it was allowed him to be able to handle death with calm, with poise. Why was he able to do that with such poise? 
it's because the world is violent, the world is broken, the world is an unsafe place, life is out of control, but then the Son of Man sees, but then Stephen sees the Son of Man seated, and he knew that life is not pointless, that the world is not out of control. He saw the Son, the one who loved him enough to die for him. He saw the king and the high priest, and he became fearless. It gave him poise. It gave him calm. He called out injustice. Even as he's being tried, even he's about to be executed, he calls out the injustice. Why? Because the right hand was a place of execution. And he knew that he had an advocate for him. Now think about this. If you just see Jesus as a teacher, if you've always just seen Jesus as a role model, if you've only seen Jesus as a religious leader, then Jesus' claims are worthless. They're worthless in your suffering, in your circumstances, because there's no one at the right hand. There's no one at the right hand of God. There's no one seated at the right hand of God. That means life, even now, is out of control. You have no advocate for your life, and as a result, you should be afraid. Your life should be filled with quaking. Remember the movie Signs? M. Night Shyamalan's Signs. It takes place in Bucks County, not too far from here. It's not a true story, but it's about aliens. Aliens that arrive to Bucks County, the most boring place on earth, right? Are they, are they friendly or are they violent? Are they friendly or are they violent? That's the question. And the main character, he's a religious man. He's a priest. Well, he left the priesthood because he lost his wife through a tragedy, because of suffering. And here's what he says. He says this. He says, people break down into two groups. When they experience something lucky, something good, Group number one sees it as more than luck, more than coincidence. They see it as a sign. They see it as evidence that there's someone up there watching out for them. Group number two sees it as just pure luck, just a happy turn of chance. For them, the situation is 50-50. It could be bad, it could be good, but deep down they feel that whatever happens, they're on their own. And that fills them with fear. There's a whole lot of people in group number one. And deep down, they feel that whatever's going to happen, there will be someone there to help them. They have an advocate. And that fills them with hope. You see, what you have to ask yourself is, what kind of person are you? Are you the kind that sees signs, that sees miracles? Or do you believe that people just get lucky? Or look at the question this way. Is it possible that there are no coincidences? In other words... If life is just a series of coincidences, if life is just random, if we're just molecules that are colliding violently and that violence led to, by chance, life, then violence and chance are at the core of who we are and life is out of control and we should be afraid. We should be afraid. There'll be no confidence. There'll be no poise. And at best, Jesus as a teacher is going to make you quake in your life. In fact, if you're quaking, it's because Jesus is just a teacher. He's just a moral leader in your life. There'll be no poise. But if you come to Jesus Christ because of his claims as your substitute, not a teacher, not a role model, not just a religious leader, but a substitute, then you know you have an advocate. You have an advocate who is a king. You have an advocate who is your high priest, the perfect priest, the perfect king who is a place of favor. And you can't have a greater advocate than that. Stephen saw Jesus at the right hand of God, seated. 
It made him calm. It made him fearless. Jesus was his advocate. Jesus was his advocate. And the one that died for you, loves you, speaks for you, reigns and fights for you. Is life out of control then? No. To the degree that you trust that, there's poise. There's poise in your suffering. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he says. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. You can go. You can make disciples. Your courage, your poise is not based on anything that you've done, but because Jesus Christ, the risen king, the high priest, is risen indeed. Now, the second point, then, is we get intimacy. We have intimacy, lasting, real intimacy. Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And I will be with you, he says. And surely I will be with you to the very end of the age. That's what he says. I will be with you. The emphasis of, communi- of, the, of this passage, if you think about this, the emphasis of this passage is not go. He didn't say go and make disciples. The emphasis is not go. Actual comment- the actual um, lesson here. Um, and commentators have been debating this for a long time, is to go and make disciples. That's the emphasis. When you say, let's go and grab dinner, the emphasis is not, let's go. The emphasis is grabbing dinner, right? Here, Jesus defines making disciples. It's two things. One, baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that's conversion. And then teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. That's residing with them into maturity, into growth, into sanctification. And he says, when you're doing this, when you're going and making disciples, I am present with you. That's the life of the church. That's the ministry of the church. That's the work of the church. The ministry of the gospel. We're all called to make disciples. It's not just the work of pastors. It's not just the work of elders or deacons. We're all called to make disciples. In fact, doing that, the very act of being there and doing that as a community, the very nature of doing that as a community, you have intimacy with God. You experience deep intimacy with God. One way that you experience the active presence of Jesus is what? To make disciples. What does that mean? If you're in the church, it's inevitable that there are going to be dry periods in your life. I'm a pastor. Inevitably, there are dry periods in my life. There are going to be periods in your life where you feel stagnant. There are going to be periods in your life where you don't feel like you're growing a lot. So just allow me to speak to you as a pastor and as a father, just for a moment. One of the first things that I think about when someone comes up to me and says, I'm just in a dry period. I'm being stagnant. I feel stagnant spiritually. One of the first things that I think about, I try to assess as I'm talking to them, is, is this person intimately tied to the life of the church? Are they intimately tied to the life of the church? I mean, I get that they know. We all know cognitively. We've heard many times. If you've been inside Metro Presbyterian Church, you've heard cognitively what it means to be a Christian. But are they plugged into the life of the church? What is the role of community in the church? Is this, what, is, what is the role of discipleship in their lives? Is it intimately a part of their life? The church is this intimate community. It's so intimate that the Apostle Paul calls it a body. Jesus says, 
you are the vine, I, you are the, I am the vine, you are the branches. You have to be intimately, organically tied to me. We're a body. And so what that means is worship and discipleship go hand in hand. Intimacy, the intimacy of God is tied together with the intimacy of the body. Union with Christ, your intimate union with Christ is tied intimately with your union with the body of Christ. And it happens through life-changing discipleship. Union. See, Jesus Christ is not like Napoleon. Napoleon's dead. So when you read about Napoleon, you get an idea, at best, just an idea of what he's like as a person. You're reading first, second, third-hand accounts about a man that's dead. And so at best, you're just getting a picture of what he's like. Jesus is not like Napoleon. Jesus is alive. Jesus Christ is alive. So when you read accounts of Jesus' life, when the gospel is being taught, Jesus is present with you in ministry. That means whenever you hear preaching, whenever you're reflecting on Scripture, Jesus is present. At the end of the book of Luke, shortly after the resurrection, you have this narrative of the disciples. Some of the disciples are on the road to Emmaus. And they encounter Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus at first, but they encounter Jesus, and they're walking. And he stays with them, and he, obviously they, they realize that it's Jesus, and he opens up the scriptures to them, and he teaches them. He, interprets, he reinterprets the entire Bible for them to see that it all points to him. And the disciples say, after he leaves, after he departs, the disciples say, were not our hearts burning within us when he opened up the scriptures to us? It means Jesus is there. If you're considering what it means to be a Christian right now, Jesus is present. When the gospel is being brought to people, Jesus is present. That's why when you say, that sermon was terrible, that's the preacher's fault. When you say, oh man, I need, I need to get anything out of that sermon, that's the preacher's fault. But when you say, I really heard the gospel today, I really experienced just a sense of who God is today, that's because Jesus is present with you. That's what that means. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus is speaking into you, you see. Some, of, some people, similarly, they leave the church. And we're, uh, Metro is filled with people who have left the church for a while, maybe because they've been burned by the church, they've experienced some difficulties in the church, and now they're slowly making their way back into the church. That's sin. That's the sin, right? It's because of the sin that we're burned by the church oftentimes, the flaws of community, the sins of community, and as a result, we get burned by that. But if, you, if you've ever experienced the warmth of the church, if you've ever experienced the love of the church, if you've ever experienced the grace of God in the church, that's because Jesus is present, because he's alive, because he's resurrected. Do you see that? It's more than just teaching. It's more than just morals. There's a spiritual intimacy that comes with reading and listening and hearing and reflecting and contemplating and confessing and praising and fellowshipping. There's a spiritual intimacy there. When the ministry of the gospel is taking place, he comes to you and he's and it's got very little to do with where you are. That applies to anybody. It has very little to do with any where anybody is spiritually. By the way, it's also why. You don't just read the Bible for a few minutes just to get some inspiration. That's not what the Bible's for. You need to meditate on it. You need to sit on it. You need to stew in it. You need to reflect on it. That's why you can't just read the Bible like a novel. 
or a textbook, you need to reflect on it. And Jesus is present there. He meets with you. He's present. It's not a hokey thing. It's not a fluffy thing. Trust me, I'm a type A Presbyterian Korean man. It is not a hokey, fluffy thing. Pray. You got to pray. Make yourself real to me in my life. The possibility of deep intimacy with God. Deep intimacy with God, the high king. So you have courage and boldness. You have intimacy with God. Thirdly, you have community. Jesus says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The word uh, surely, that's what you see in the NIV. That's the version of the Bible. When you look at the King James Version, the word is lo, and lo, I am with you. In the ESV, popular uh, version of the Bible, translation of the Bible, you see the word behold. They all mean the same thing. Behold, I am with you. There's this, what Jesus is doing, he's calling you to attention. He's calling yourself to attention. Right? He says, surely, behold, lo, I'm calling you to attention. It's a very strong word. Mid-Atlantic Americans today, very, very individualistic society. So when you hear this, you say, ah, oh, what that means is Jesus is promising that he's with me to the very end. He's with me. So when I'm in my office, he's with me. When I'm in Kensington, he's with me. And yes, that's absolutely true. He's present. We just talked about that. There's an intimacy with God there, but that's not the emphasis here. Lo, behold, surely, verily, verily, I am with you. You, the word is plural. I am with you all to the end. I am with you all. Jesus is saying, pay attention to this. I am with all of you. Because I am risen, because I am living, because I'm a person, I'm a living being, you will know me best in the context of community. I, will, I am with you all. That's what he's saying. More than 80% of Americans in our country today believe that you can be a Christian without going to church. So the Great Commission to them is, oh, it's just about evangelism. You need to go on missions. Go. Therefore, go and make disciples. And that's not what this is about. The heart of the Great Commission is Jesus being present with us corporately. I am with you all. Think about this. Think about your coming to faith in Christ. All of us here are on a spiritual journey. Every one of us is on a spiritual journey in our faith in Christ. Some of us very, very beginning stages, inquiry. We're learning. We're learning about what it means to be a Christian. Some of us have come to deep faith, a personal faith, but almost none of us have ever come to a deeper faith, a deeper understanding, a deeper intimacy with God alone, just by reading, just by reflecting, just by studying alone. You can take every element of what we do at church and do that personally. And very few of us have come to a deeper faith alone that way. And think about it, even self-discovery, your own discovery of yourself, what every American, every, everybody in the Western society pursues, self-discovery, rarely happens just by reading a book, just by reflecting on yourself, just by studying yourself. It only, it's only in the context of deep community where you discover different dimensions of yourself, where you discover different dimensions of who you are and other people, different gifts of yourself and other people. You always say, people always say, some people bring out the best in you. Some people bring out the worst in you. 
Some people bring out silly parts of who you are. Each of your closest friends will draw out unique dimensions of who you are. That's how it is in your experience with Jesus. In your experience of Jesus, because God by nature, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, God by nature is community. It's in the context of community where you see greater dimensions in experiencing God. Only in the context of community. Remember Jerry Maguire, you complete me? Famous phrase, you complete me. The one person will not necessarily do the trick. No matter how intimate that relationship is, the point is, we need, even Jerry Maguire will tell you, we need somebody outside of ourselves to complete us. And that's the reality. We're built that way. We need more than a husband. You need more than a wife to be complete. In your experience of God and Jesus Christ, if Jesus is your true husband, and even he is best experienced through community, then the more intimate you are with Jesus, the more intimate you'll become with one another. That's the importance of the church. That's the ministry of the church. That's the life of the church. You need a corporate relationship with God every bit as much as a personal, deep, intimate relationship with God. You've got to get plugged into the church. You want to grow in Christ? You want to grow in your faith? You've got to get plugged into the church. You've got to be involved walking in consistent community with one another. That's the heart of discipleship. It's not this, When we think discipleship, some of us have horrible experiences of what it means to have a disciple or a discipler. You've got to put those things aside. Gospel discipleship is this, that organic relationship, walking together in community, in faith, consistently in union with Christ. That's what it is. Intimacy with Christ, breeding intimacy with one another. Lastly, victory. Jesus Christ says, Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. I am alive. I am risen. I am at the right hand of God. I am present with all of you. He says, to the end of the age, to the end of the world. For Christians, the end of this story, the end of our story here is the beginning of new life. So that should put our entire story into perspective. It makes us resilient in suffering. What makes a great story? What makes a great epic drama? Everything in the beginning looks dark. Well, it actually begins with a very pleasant beginning that leads to darkness. Everything all of a sudden looks dark. Everything looks bleak, almost to the point of the end. And then there's this ironic turn that takes place, a turn of events that if you really look deeply, you saw all along. It was there all along, but you just didn't see it coming. And then what happens is there's an amazing reversal. And Jesus is saying this, one day all of your suffering will come to an end. In your darkest, deepest, bleakest moments, I want you to be reminded that I am at the heart of the world's happy ending. The end of history, everything that's good, the end of history is good. It ends with me, he says. Remember Lord of the Rings? Famous narrative in Lord of the Rings. Remember Samwise? Sam, he wakes up. He says, I thought you were dead. I thought I was dead. Wait, is everything sad going to come untrue? That's what he says. One day there will be an ultimate reversal where everything that you've ever lost will be found again. Everything broken in your life will be renewed. 
it's going to begin with your own heart. It's going to begin with your body. Revelation 21, behold, he says. I want you to pay attention. Very strong word. Behold, I'm making all things new. That's what he says. In other words, Jesus doesn't make all new things. He doesn't just wipe us out and create a whole new world and create new things and new people. He doesn't say that. He says, behold, I am making all things new. That means that there has to be suffering. There has to be brokenness. There has to be darkness. And it's through that brokenness and darkness that newness will come. That's what it is. That's what he says. Wrath will be swallowed up. Evil will be swallowed up. The gospel, the birth of Christ, the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, it will be filled with tragedy, but it ends in the ultimate comedy, the ultimate happy ending. Everything broken will be renewed. All of wrath will be swallowed up, and the joy is all that remains with the holy presence of God. That's our assurance. An assurance of that will heal any brokenness, bitterness. It's going to heal any bitterness. Trusting that, to the degree you will trust that, it will heal your anger. You've been broken, you've been hurt in your life, to the degree that you trust that, it will begin to heal the hurt. If you believe in the resurrection, it's going to heal your heart because it's true. And that's going to be the beginning of peace, the beginning of restoration, the seedlings of joy that will be birthed into the ultimate joy. Do you see that? One that came through suffering and brokenness and humiliation and death, Right? It's going to come, you know, Jesus came and he didn't come despite the brokenness and humiliation, death. The newness came through the, the resurrection. The newness came through the brokenness and humiliation and death. That's what happened. Victory. If you don't believe that, what you're saying is that evil will win. That one day justice will prevail. Then why live with any hope? Then life is just random. Life is just out of control. There is no hope. Evil wins. If God were to let even one iota of evil to win, if he just lets one sin go, that's why Jesus had to die, you see, because God is just. That's why we know that evil will be swallowed up in victory, you see. The end of our personal story, Jesus says, I am with you to the end. How do you trust that? How do you know that? It's because Jesus Christ went to the end for you. The end of your personal story. He knows every story. He knows every brokenness, every hurt, every betrayal, every sin, every darkness, every running from God, every distance that you have, every little distance that you've tried to hide, that you do hide now. He knows. He says, I'm present with you. He's present. That opportunity to be intimate with him is there. But he knows, and he went to the end. He's been through every bookend of your life, every pain, every betrayal, every joy, and he knows what it's going to take to restore us. In Gethsemane, what does he say? Now my heart is troubled to the point of death. What Jesus is doing in Gethsemane is he's reflecting on the cross. He's reflecting on the cross. And literally the weight of the world, the sin of the world, the weight of the sin of the world is on his shoulders. And in Gethsemane, there he's experiencing the brokenness and the humiliation and he's seeing what's going to become of him and he knows and it's quaking him. There he's experiencing the quaking. And on the cross, 
Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of kings, the right hand of God, the judge of the world, the high priest, the advocate, is suffering and bleeding and dying, and there was darkness over the land. The real earthquake. On the cross, there was physically an earthquake. There was a quaking. And yet, first of all, in Gethsemane, he says, my heart is troubled. He's quaking. And then on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is now I'm being plunged into the darkest storm, into the true storm. Now I'm suffering the ultimate injustice. Perfection is being put on the cross, and there's no one to intercede for me. I am forsaken. There is no intimacy with God. There is no community. My friends have abandoned me. The people at large are mocking me and insulting me. I'm completely forsaken by God. The cross is the ultimate symbol of defeat. The ultimate symbol of loss. That's why we can go to Jesus. That's why you can go to Jesus, because he's been there. You've experienced defeat. He's experienced the ultimate defeat. Why? So the victory is ours. The church, as broken as it may be, is the representation of victory, the victory of Christ. You see, you can go to Jesus because he's been through it. He's seen you through every story. He's seen you through every betrayal. And he says, it is finished. You know what that means? I've been to all corners of your life. I've been to, from time to time, from everlasting to everlasting. I've been through every bookend of every story. And I've accounted for every one of our sins. I've accounted for every one of your sins. Every debt. And guess what? When he said it is paid, that is a business transactional term. He says, I've seen every debt and it's been paid. It's been paid on the cross. Jesus Christ suffered every grief for your joy. Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate cosmic rejection. So you will have an advocate from end to end in our lives. He is the ultimate high priest to the end of the age. If you're living in fear right now, it's because Jesus is just a teacher. If you're quaking because of one trouble, the one big trouble in your life, and it's making you quake, and you lose your poise. That's because Jesus is just a moral leader right now for you. Let him speak into you because he's present. Be intimate with him. Be intimate with him. Let him in and believe. Don't just believe in him. Believe him. Believe his words, what he's saying. And there is your poise. And there is your intimacy. And here is your community. And we have victory. Do you see that? And it's all at once. It's all at once. And it goes to the end of time. That's why he says, first there's conversion, and then he says, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Will you believe? Do you believe? Let's pray.